Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, welcome to How to Pakistan once again. Uh, I'm one half of your host. Uh, my name is Musharraf Zaidi. You know the other half of uh, the host. His name is? It's Fatih Zaka and everyone welcome once again. We're on Skype today. We're doing this together and it seems appropriate given that one of the big questions in Pakistan is whether a Skype budget is legal or not, given the recent troubles, health issues that the Prime Minister has had. He's gone to the UK to get a operation done. And of course, uh, as is unpredictable, it's brought along a few legitimate issues, some petty issues, and some uh, long-term issues. So I thought today would be the day that we'd discuss some of that. So. Musharraf, some of the legitimate issues. I mean, one of the things that Chaudhary Iftikhar raised, which was derided initially, but he does have a point on the constitutionality of having a prime minister go under and that there's this power vacuum. And occasionally, I think a lot of Western films, especially on the White House, tend to make much of this, is that what's the order of succession while a prime minister or a president is incapacitated? Do you remember Air Force One? Yes. So I was going to quote uh, the other show, that TV show that went, um, but I forget its name right now. But yeah, Air The Force West Wing? One. The West Wing, exactly. Yeah, yes. that's, that's my favorite TV show. But any time. show about the White House, by the way, whether it's uh, Scandal, whether it's The West Wing or anything else, the president ultimately gets shot. And then there's this tense nine-hour uh, recovery period during which they're trying to figure out who's running the nation and a lot of constitutionalists get jittery about the legality of the whole edifice. So yeah, but what happens in Air Force One because that's a more important film than these other ones. Look, I, you know, I think it's an important question and I think countries should be having it. You know, having having that question raised and, and discussing that question. I think that uh, there should be a constitutional provision if there isn't, uh, and and we should certainly we should certainly ask for one. Apparently, there's a uh, rule book. Uh, there's a rule book for most things. So uh, under the law, uh, so first you have the constitution, right, and then you have yeah. laws or ordinances, depending on what kind of uh, what kind of institution you had in terms of government um, at the time that the law or the ordinance was passed. Ordinances are basically decrees. Laws usually have to, uh, almost always, have to go through, exactly, they have to be ratified by parliament, lower house and upper house. Um, I think that in a sort of bicameral legislature in which, you know, you have a cabinet system of governance, I think there is an overstatement of the problem. Uh, so I, I think that there's absolutely a legitimate question about clarity. But as you rightly point out, that, that question kind of exists even in places that apparently have ha have had it figured out for much longer than we have, um, I, I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said for having a debate that leads to real sort of legal and regulatory outcomes. So I'd love to see, as a result of this incident or this this situation that we have right now, I'd love to see either the opposition or the governing uh, coalition. I mean, it's not much of a coalition, the PMLN, essentially, um, essentially put together a legislation that makes it more clear uh, as to what exactly is supposed to happen 
in case uh, the prime minister is incapacitated. But again, I would say because the power doesn't lie with the prime minister uh, in, in, in spirit, the power lies with the parliament that has elected the prime minister, then the actual sort of answer is, well, you know, actually the prime minister is going to, if he's incapacitated, then it's up to the National Assembly potentially to figure out a way forward. But luckily, there's before we get to that stage, I'm just skipping through a bunch of WhatsApp messages because somebody WhatsApped me the exact uh, rules and regulations under which this is actually apparently not as big a problem as some folks have made it out to be. I just want to cite the exact law. And again, since it's from a WhatsApp group, it has almost zero credibility, but it's still worth uh, worth floating. I mean, I, I think uh, while you go through that, my gut feeling is I think some degree of legislation needs to be done because one of the problems with incapacitation is that under the current system, you would have to call both houses and you have to worry about quorum. You have to make sure that they do a whole election uh, process just to ensure who the person is uh, in absence of that. And we used to have a deputy prime minister, but I don't believe that it was legally sanctioned. It was much more a case of giving somebody a chance to save face for the support that they were given. But right now, I mean, just some degree of legislation that shows, you know, what's the pecking order, because they have that in the Supreme Court. They have that in other institutions when people go on leaves. It's fairly clear cut. And I think... Um, one of the things is, of course, that one may be irritated by the motivation of people using this particular opportunity, but it's a valid question generally. And I agree with you in the sense that given the sort of majority they have right now, it may not be one of great substance, but one that needs to be resolved, at least in the future. No, I agree. As I said, I think we should have a law. And I think that one of the things that needs to come out of this discussion that the country, at least part of the country, is having is is to actually put together the legislation. You know, I recently wrote about the fact that the dharna didn't really yield the kind of electoral reform that many might have imagined it should have yielded. Uh, having said that, there is a new constitutional amendment. There are changes to the way that the that the uh, election commission of Pakistan is structured. I don't think those are meaningful changes uh, to the extent of uh, what was required uh, to prevent the system from becoming paralyzed the way that it did during the Dharna uh, and to prevent the lack of credibility that at least some people in our country uh, feel the current parliament and the, uh, you know, the associate institutions have. But the fact is that that amendment actually is yet another sign that it's got a cough and a bad fever and maybe a couple of legs amputated and, you know, disfigured. But Pakistani democracy is kind of, it's crawling forward. It's not, it is not sort of static. Um, and, and, you know, I think that when issues like this come up and there are, like, like you've said, it's absolutely a legitimate issue, then we should solve it by going to parliament and making a new law. Here, here, here's what section 12, uh, one of the Prime Minister's Salary Allowances and Privileges Act of 1975 says, The Prime Minister may avail himself of leave of absence during his term of office at any one time or from time to time for urgent reasons of health or private affairs for a period not exceeding three months in the aggregate. 
Article 90 of the Constitution, the federal government says, uh, Article 90 of the Constitution says, the federal government, one subject to the Constitution, the executive authority of the Federation shall be exercised in the name of the president by the federal government, consisting of the prime minister and the federal ministers, which shall act through the prime minister, who shall be chief executive of the Federation. Uh, and two, in the performance of his functions under the Constitution, the Prime Minister may act directly uh, or through the federal ministers. So, you know, I think that... Uh, as I think the question here, I, I'm not very well versed in the law, and frankly, the first part of this was very clear to me, but the latter part is much more dense. But I think, I think what it seems to suggest, and one of the things that is slightly absent, is the clear articulation of... Who does what in my absence? Uh, it seems to say that you know you can nominate or you know repose confidence in essentially the cabinet and you know certain sections to go on as they have been. But um, uh, I, th I think that is something then that hasn't been articulated as well. And I'm just wondering also that if it's this whole scenario is probably an indication of one of the problems that happens. Uh, generally with uh, sort of, uh, you, know, um, you know, sort of politics in Pakistan, which is that, you know, it's so personality dependent that succession planning or identifying or giving, handing over the reins even for a small period of time tends to be something that is so assiduously avoided. So I think that really is, is cutting to the heart of what, what we're really discussing, right? In a sense... Yeah. You know, the reason that people have this sense of uh, insecurity and this sense of anger and frustration with the way things are right now, Fussy, is because they've not really, people in our country, you and I included, we have not been given the kind of performance in terms of efficiency and management that you would expect from the leader, of the three-time elected leader of a country of 200 million people with nuclear weapons, 24 million kids out of school, and uh, lots and lots of other problems. So I think that, you know, there's a real underlying democratic and institutional deficit that's actually causing the, the debate. So while the frontal part of the debate is, hey, who's going to be in charge while he's gone? The real question underlying that is, what if... God forbid. And I think, you know, this might be a good time, at least for me, Fussy, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, but I'll leave it to you to decide. Uh, I certainly pray uh, with all my heart that uh, that Allah sort of bless the Prime Minister with good health. I pray for the health of all our political leaders. Anybody who successfully appeals for and receives votes and receives the confidence of this country's uh, people, whether it's Imran Khan or it's Nawaz Sharif or it's Afrasiyab Khatak or it's, you know, um, any of the MQM leaders, any of the PMLQ leaders, um, their deeds, uh, their personal deeds, I, I don't really, they're, they're not my business per se, their behavior in office, uh, we should have the institutional strength to manage them, to hold them to account. Uh, we have a very vibrant press. We have such an intelligent and, uh, and engaged now, thanks to partly to the BTI, uh, we have such an engaged and educated and enlightened sort of uh, urban, uh, you know, uh, almost political movement that isn't just BTI, but is certainly that that is one of the features of it. We have all the things in place to have a very healthy democracy that focuses on the right things, inshallah. So, you know, 
I mean, those things should be in place. And while whether they are or not, I feel compelled that this is my country's elected leader and he's under the knife. And uh, and I hope that it goes well. Uh, I, you know, we've both had members of our family that have undergone surgery. Um, and uh, I, I think anybody who has had a member of their family go through surgery uh, knows uh, what it's like uh, waiting outside and praying hard and not knowing what the outcome will be. So to the prime minister and to his family, all my prayers and, and may Allah uh, bless everyone in our country with the medical facilities that the prime minister is able to uh, take advantage of. Uh, and, and may all of them one day be present in our country for free. Uh, we, we, we watch other countries debate things like universal health care and the National Health Service. Um, we, should, we should have that debate in our country too. And again, a lot of the critics of the prime minister, their heart is in the right place. I think there's a lack of grace sometimes in the way which people express their opinions. But we absolutely should have the best health care in the world, especially for the poorest Pakistanis in the world who happen to be in Pakistan and stuck there for, for, for the time being. So, um, I think... No, I, I agree. I, I, think, I think it's interesting that you bring up this one particular issue where I think uh, just following some of the discussion around the health troubles of the Prime Minister, one can see uh, uh, the way you put it rather mildly is the lack of grace. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at because I think by and large political parties have uh, said the right things. Uh, some have a forced caveat a bit slightly, but um, the issue here is that, you know, you find a lot of supporters maybe on another end of the political spectrum actually see a demise as a political solution, which unfortunately speaks to what is a general lack of understanding of the system and also partly, um, you know, a lack of true investment in the political process, because if we were waiting for natural causes, I think uh, one of the things that uh, is truly problematic here is that uh, longevity and things like that should not be, you know, one of your sort of political stratagems or hopes that you should have. And I'm, I'm hoping that something like this, because it's interesting, and it has to do partly also with the tendency of the PMLN to be circumspect with information, and it's partly a reflection of a feeling of their own fragility sometimes. Uh, the point being that, you know, when Musharraf mentioned the whole point about, you know, having a lack of grace at some points, I think it's also rooted in the fact that, you know, for some, there's so much frustration in the system that unfortunately taking somebody's demise is a political opportunity. And by this, I mean supporters who are relatively new and maybe just uh, too far polarized to understand. But this is one of those things that is symptomatic of something larger, which is finding these opportunistic elements to find ways to try and obviate or destroy, you know, mandate. And hopefully over time, whatever the reason may be, we gain a sense of political maturity that we, you know, continue to be tactical in sort of the political engagement and sort of the adversarial relationship, but not be so opportunistic as to take anything that comes our way, because that's what creates system difficulties. And hopefully over time, I think uh, we'll get there slowly. Uh, it's uh, bound to happen. But uh, as long as the system continues. So here's another thing I think that, you know, following Panama, following 
you know, now with this health scare, it's interesting how this narrative of that the government's on his knees or on its way out, or it may even be, you know, some form of intervention that has once again taken uh, center stage in terms of scaremongering. Look, I think the previous government lived through the entire five years with this, you know, every every other day it was supposed to be falling. Um, during the uh, long march uh, for the lawyers' movement, I mean, there really was a threat. I think that during the Dharna as well, there was a legitimate threat. Uh, I, I'm not sure that threat is uh, real at, at this moment. I also don't think that uh, anybody has the appetite for an intervention. And I think it's actually unfortunate that the country cannot seem to fathom uh, sustained stability. That's not, you know, I mean, I mean, at one level, I think we get bored. Unfortunate, man. <laughs> Honestly, like, I mean, it's like, uh, hey, we had a great 2015. Hey, let's just go How easy. How do we fuck it up this year? <laughs> yeah, let, let's go easy on the, let's start going easy on the terrace, you know, because we've won. And, you know, we'll still build infrastructure, but we'll do it in a, in a way that we rub people's face in it so that, you know, we strengthen like, you know, in minuscule, obscure sort of civil society groups that prefer like, you know, a, a nice view of Jipurji over, you know, urban transport. Yeah, uh -huh. let's, let's just rub people's face in it while we're doing it. And hey, everybody's predicting that we're going to win the 2018 election. So why don't we just say we've won it? And let's start deciding on who's going to be the prime minister next time. Oh, wait, it's going to be Navashiri. You know, it's like a little bit of respect. You, you used something really interesting, uh, Fassi. You used the term political maturity. And I think there's another term that one could use, uh, which I think is more apt, appropriate and apt. And that is, yeah. that is simply maturity. You know, I think that we sometimes, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that a lot of the problems that we have in our discourse and the way that we do things have less to do with overarching political maturity and more to do simply with maturity. Um, if you've played uh, competitive sports uh, in any organized way when you're younger, I mean, one of the great benefits of, of having that privilege uh, is that I, I will never forget, I must have been, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12, and... It was really sort of sandpapered into me, the concept of respecting the game, respecting the opponent, respecting the process. And what that was really about was not respect. So, so, so what that would mean in, in political terms is that you don't respect Nawaz Sharif because he's a great guy, because you don't know him. So you don't, you respect Nawaz Sharif because he's the thing that the system put up. Uh, you don't respect the system because it's delivering. You respect the system because that's what's in place and that's the thing that you will have to use if you want something to be better than the way it is right now. You respect the process because the process is the only way to get the system to do the things you want and have the people in place that you want. And if you respect everybody, then you'll never underestimate an opponent and you'll never overestimate an opponent and i think one of the problems with again kind of the really angry legitimately angry but 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 still like really angry sort of you know folks in our discourse is that 
there's not really a lot of respect for anything except their own uh, rage. You know, there's this feeling, and I think part of it is this whole millennial thing. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but it's a real pet pet topic of mine these days. Um, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the sense of entitlement. Uh, I understand where, I think I understand where it's coming from. I think technology has changed human expectations and, and the way humans react with each other and with, with social stimuli. And so, uh, I mean, I understand where it's coming from, but it's still remarkable the amount of entitlement that people feel that, for example, if you're really angry, that that, that, that's, that somebody cares. Uh, that your anger matters, and or that it's justified. Well, it. So I, I'm saying I'm perfectly like it's totally cool and legit to be angry because I, you know, I was a young man and I was pretty angry, and I know you were a young man and you were pretty angry, but I never, even like at sort of seventeen, nineteen, twenty-one, I never felt uh, that my anger particularly mattered. I mean, I guess it mattered to me and to my family, my immediate friends. But there's a real expectation among young people today, globally, this is a global disease, that just their anger alone is an entitling instrument uh, that somebody should listen to them uh, because they can scream uh, obscenities at, uh, at people in a way that you and me couldn't. I mean, there was no Twitter, uh, you know, when we yeah. were angry. And so yeah. we just had to hit the I books. Did. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to add two things to this. I, th I think it's interesting. One of the things that um, maybe just to clarify, and I presume this is what you mean anyway, is that most people or some people may, you know, look at the whole respect argument as a cop out. And I think what's really needs to be clear in people's mind is that the idea for respect does not mean that it's no longer going to be adversarial. It's no longer going to be, I mean, you even have people with combatants who respect one another at wartime. And there's a certain rule of engagement because if you don't have those, you literally, you know, go into the gutter and getting out of it, it's something that, you know, gets everybody dirty. It's a process that, you know, sets you back decades. And the whole idea of respect, I think I, I agree with it entirely. And I think most people need to understand that it encompasses a very strong adversarial element as well, which is that it does not engender a sense that you give up your position in any way whatsoever, but you simply engage in a way that, you know, the rules are such that both can work with one another and that if you're actually looking for the fruition of some kind of change, that it's possible in the ambit of that sort of dynamic. And um, the second thing I find interesting about millennials also that I uh, agree with you on I mean, one of the things my gut feeling is also with millennials and people who've grown up. I mean, this is the first generation that's really grown up under social media. And, you know, so there's no parental involvement, understanding people are saying whatever. They haven't learned what the consequences could be. I think they'd really find out 20 years down the line that, you know, where there's a history, a record of everything you've said. And uh, I think maybe the second generation after the millennials who've seen, you know, some of the mistakes that have accrued, they'd be a bit better. Because I also imagine, you know, I, I sometimes think, oh, my God, thank God there was no social media because the dumb things I said between 15 and 25 or actually probably even much later, you know, uh, you know, I had a chance to grow up on my own without eventually having some kind of scrutiny. But right now, I think partly, you know, the echo chamber effect, finding people 
you're close to. Uh, and in some ways, the mob mentality that exists online, I am slightly hoping, maybe even hopeful that maybe in the next generation, they'll have learned to deal with these technologies. They've have learned to see, you know, what's even in their best interest. Right now, it seems to be that, you know, you can say whatever you want, get away with it, act however you want. Because these very same people, actually, it's very interesting. When you meet them in person, they're fairly different. Well, so we've we've veered back into this space, and it's a topic that I that I again I think maybe we've even talked about it on the podcast. But I know you and I have talked about it offline more than once, right? And it's a conversation yeah. I have with a lot of people because I'm always fascinated by um, what happens on on social media. Um, there's definitely it, it certainly is like uh, it certainly is like uh, Gatorade or maybe Red Bull for self confidence. For a lot of young, maybe <laughs> yeah. not even young, but even older people, who in person may not have the the presence or the or, or the confidence uh, to be as assertive and bold with their language, and I actually think I, I think that's kind of a wonderful thing. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't say this, you know, as someone who's been blessed with, you know, through experience and and through sort of training. I mean, my dad used to drill me. On public speaking, I remember all the way back in grade three, there was this poem that I had to memorize, and I remember crying and not wanting to memorize it. And Dad was like, "You know what? I was a public speaker, and you're going to be a public speaker." And so, you know, I mean, that's just one sort of you know data point. But there's a lot of people that are either, in terms of natural personality, not not that keen on being uh, uh, sort of verbose and 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 uh, super outgoing. Um, in real life. Uh, and so I think social media gives those folks, you know, a vent and, and a place where they can be, uh, you know, pretty, pretty loud and, and when they want to be aggressive. And I think that's, that's kind of cool. I do think though, just generally speaking, right, that people need to see social media. And so, so the, the distinction people make between virtual and real I'm not sure that distinction actually exists in reality, right? In reality, walking up to somebody and cursing at them in their face, uh, it's not something people do. And so I'm not sure why people think that doing that on social media is okay. You know what I mean? Like, I, Then again, I'm not 17 anymore, and I don't really feel like walking up to anybody and cursing at them. I'm angry about inequality, and I'm angry about uh, corruption, and I'm angry about... A whole host of things, but I feel like there's all these tools that one has at their at one's disposal that one should be using effectively to kind of counter those things, and that those battles are twenty year battles, and uh, and it doesn't matter. Like my anger doesn't matter. Like I have the I guess at forty you have the humility, uh, and and maybe zindagi mein you know itni tokre banda ka chuka hota hai that like you know that your anger doesn't like nobody cares about your anger. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about Musharraf Zaidi and how angry and passionate he is, right? Uh, and and so that's not the that's not the currency that we're, that's going to buy us change. Uh, what's going to buy us change is like digging in, learning how to dig, digging in, then digging in deeper, then placing the 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 mines, and then laying the pipelines for stuff to happen two years later, three months later, twenty years later, and and that's how sort of things work. That's how they've worked throughout human history, and no matter how cool social media is. Human history is still a pretty good guide as as to way you know the way things 
change in the way things happen. So, you know, uh, just to take the conversation to another angle, one of the things that has also happened these past few days, and we're speaking about, you know, being under the knife and all that. Well, the Council of Islamic Ideology has also come up with its own women's protection bill, and some of it reads like a protection bill. But the key uh, thing there is that, you know, it's interesting how some aspects are, you know, fairly progressive, some are very problematic, and uh, I, I, I think one of the interesting things that's happened is following some of the debate on that online, it's interesting how people have, uh, you know, come up and debated it much more than I would have thought would have been done in the past. I mean, there is a certain section of society that would do that, but now it's much broader and, you know, they're considering more about it. I mean, this is not to reflect on, you know, what the status of the CII is in our edifice, but just in terms of the reactions to it. I've been finding it extremely interesting. And just, you know, a slight segue. The other day I met um, Yasser Latif Hamdani, uh, the lawyer, um, you know, uh, for lack of uh, also an, another description is Jinaist. And, you know, he was telling me this really interesting thing was that he read somewhere that they came up with the Sawab car, which was which a car that ran on Sawab. And we sat and we thought, like, how would that be fueled? And um, so this is something totally not related to this, but he came up with a really good example of how you could fuel the Sawab car. You need to have a Hindu and an Amadi in the back seat, and you get 30 miles to the slab. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that any, so I, you know, you know, I mean, it's interesting that you've, uh, you've taken it there, Fussy. Uh, you, <laughs> uh, you know me, you know me quite well. Yeah. I, I think that progressives in Pakistan have a duty to figure, well, to do two things. One, to continue to provoke. I, I mean, I think that there is an element of provocation that is legitimate and that, that needs to continue. On the other hand, I also think that uh, progressives in Pakistan uh, need to develop the wherewithal to have a serious conversation. So there is no version of Islam in which slapping uh, or hurting uh, people that disagree with your uh, faith or your interpretation of your faith. Uh, there, there's no savab for that. I mean, if there was a savab car, uh, Fussy, and I, I hate to get religious on you, bro, but if there was a savab car, it would run on love. It would run yeah. on compassion. It, yeah. would, it would run on It would run on the charity that people are going to... There's going to be an explosion of charity in the next 10 days or so when the holy month begins. And the just the barakah of that alone, I, uh, to me, is, is what is what fuels the survival of, of this country that is so poorly governed and so poorly treated by its own people, by its leaders, by other countries in the neighborhood, by global powers. Uh, and and I, I mean, I believe this stuff, right? So I think that, you know, if there is a salab car, it's it's running on love and it's running on ma ki dua, jannat ki hawa, nani ki dua, you know, hamare bazurgon ki, you know, like we are a land of people who sort of, you know, whose whirling dervish continues long after they're in their graves from... Abdullah Shah Ghazi all the way to Rahman Baba and everybody in between from South Punjab, from Lahore all the way up to, uh, you know, through Golra and, uh, you know, so, I mean, 
I don't, for me, and again, I, I like I said, I think provocation is an important instrument in our discourse, and I, I think we need it, as long as it doesn't cross certain lines, and of course, you know, we can always debate what those lines are, and I think the debating of the lines is why you need the provocation, that's how you debate lines, but, but for me personally, I don't get any joy out of mocking, uh, you know, the, the naivete, well, just the naivete of, of, of many people who don't, who haven't had the privileges and, 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 and opportunities that you and I have had and maybe whose worldview is then therefore limited uh, and, and whose big deal in life is, you know, kamayin savab. I, I mean, I, 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 like I think that if anything, you and I and, and Yasser, we should be, we should be the, the ladder for those people. We should be the, the crutch for those people to, you know, to have a chance to do the things that, you know, that we want to do to... To have more opportunity, do you, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, but I presume anyone who has come up with the sawabkar is probably much more well informed than the people you're referring to. Well, I'm not and talking. I, so I, I see not, a degree of uh, cynicism in that whole enterprise. Of course, uh, because, see, but I'm not talking about the guy who came up with it. I'm talking about who that guy is is who that guy is playing for. I mean, that guy's coming up with that not because, you know, he wants to be made fun of by you and me and, and, and Yasser, right? It's a commercial appropriation of religion. Of course it is, uh, Fasi. There's no question. But the fact that somebody thinks that it can be commercially appropriated that way means that there's an audience for that, correct? Absolutely. That audience is not guilty of the cynicism of this man, Correct. That, uh, yes, I mean that audience is is uh, I mean frankly probably malnourished, definitely undereducated, probably not as literate as as we'd like them to be, probably not of the same income levels as as we'd like them to be, uh, incapable of engaging with this uh, with this charlatan that's come up with this. And so my question is: Yes, we should find a way of challenging the charlatan. Yes, we should think about appropriate ways in which we provoke debate and expand the sphere of debate in our country. But no, we shouldn't mock stuff that is going to be used. The mockery itself is going to be used to expand that audience and to deepen the sawab kar rather than deepening, you know, whatever agenda we have. And, and, and do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, so I think there's a tactical for me. And again, this is just for me, but my sort of my, my value set and, and the way that I approach this is that I'd like us to actually find a way of appealing to that audience, to compete with the charlatan and beat him in talking to that audience and saying, you know what, like Sawab is really important and here are four ways in which, you know, learning and education delivers Sawab. Here are four ways in which embracing, you know, an Amadi or a Shia or a Christian or a Hindu or a Sikh is, is better for our Akhira. Here is, you know, two ways that, uh, you know, not cursing uh, at something and instead doing X, Y, and Z. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? We are not competing in that space. And if the only so thing we're I, doing... So, so when you put it like that, I can't disagree with that at all. I think that would be the right way to go about it. I think one of the concerns that I would have is that it's also a big presumption that, you know, you find that for a lot of people that even though that they can be well-intended, they can also do great degrees of wrong and that they can hold a high and mighty ideal on one hand and actually a extremely 
poor or very negative action sets on the other. And, and that's true of like even ideology. That's true of uh, certain ways of nation building. And I think the key thing there is that I think both go hand in hand is that, you know, when an idea is taken to its ridiculous extreme, uh, one is that you do engage. There's a limit to what that engagement may or may not achieve, depending upon how open or close-minded, or, of course, some of the circumstantial sets surrounding uh, the people themselves, some of which, obviously, they can't help because society has failed them. And the second is then also, I think there's also a space for mocking the idea, especially if it's been taken to an extreme that, you know, is it's got ancillary issues around it also, that if you can believe that, you can also believe uh, you know, a worldview where uh, the non-Muslim is utterly evil. And you can also believe that, you know, that the only solution is not engagement, but destruction. So I, I, I think it's like, so while I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I think it's also that, you know, the complex set of audiences that it addresses is uh, much bigger and much more uh, variegated than, you know, we sometimes presume. I think, yeah, that, I mean, two things, right? One, I think that that's why our actions in the public space ideally should be, uh, should be uh, preceded by, by data and evidence rather than by presumptions. So I agree entirely that if you, if, I mean, if we are having a serious conversation about how to counter some of these more um, ambitious and uh, ridiculous notions, <laughs> <laughs> then, then, then the way to approach them it might not be the, on the basis of my presumption or your presumption, but on the basis of what actually is out there. And we don't have a great uh, culture of uh, opinion polling and, and public data. Uh, we have, I think the PSLM is a massively underused uh, resource. That's the Pakistan standard measure uh, PSLM. Statistical Measure of Living, Standard Measure of Living. Basically, it's the Bureau of Statistics annual exercise that does a household survey uh, that is representative across the country, provincially, and across districts. So I think that there are, there's a lot of data in there that can tell us a lot about our country that we don't, uh, that we may not already know. The other thing is that, you know, the control instrument and, and the thing that is a normalizer and an equalizer uh, you know, you were talking about how good intentions are not, alone are not enough and good intentions often lead to sort of bad outcomes. That's why democracy is such a beautiful thing because it creates the inbuilt mechanisms to put a check on inadvertent and advertent corruption. And when I use corruption, I'm not talking about how much money people are milking or, you know, what kind of rent-seeking is taking place, but corruption in the sense that the use of the public uh, domain uh, for for anything other than public good. Um, that ultimately is corruption, right? And sometimes, uh, not sometimes, often, uh, if you think about some, some of the public holidays that we've been given, if you think about the spaces that are either blocked or given, to depending on who you are, uh, that all of those things represent a corruption of uh, the public space, a corruption of the purpose of democracy. And so, you know, what's not working is, is the extent to which we're using uh, the system 
uh, in our favor rather than the system itself. Does that does that make any sense? You sort of lost me at the end over there. But um, yeah, so, but I just I think I think we should also sort of question one thing is that um, I I do think that. You know, so, for example, like, you know, with the CII recently and, you know, its whole set of proposals, there also exists an opportunity right now. And I, you know, I've been thinking about this. I don't know if it's, so, so there are certain issues, right? Number one is that you've got parliament. Parliament is, by and large, staffed with Muslims. It's, you know, representative of the pulse of the people. And then they can legislate on these issues. So one is the question of, you know, uh, why this institution is there. So there's that. But the real thing is that now that they have, say, uh, you know, given an opinion, they've provided so much. Like, so there are areas within it that, you know, they've talked about certain rights. I mean, they've made it clear that, you know, if you've been forcibly converted, if you're a woman and then you go back to your own religion, uh, you can't be accused of blasphemy. Things that, you know, there are these little clarifications. I, th I think, I don't know. I see that, you know, out of that whole spectrum of things that they've put out, there are areas that, you know, we could actually use as an opportunity for legislation right now in areas that may be unaddressed and, uh, you know, FIT would also, again, uh, I mean, you could criticize me on this, but I'm presuming what maybe the rest of the nation would be also okay with. Yeah, I'm not going to criticize you on anything, Fussy. Um, but uh, I, I agree with you. I think this is an opportunity, but it's an opportunity for visionary leadership. Um, just to loop this back to the discussion today that we began, uh, I think there, you know, the fact that power is as centralized as it is in the prime minister's office, um, and that the prime minister's own way of working. Um, uh, even even sort of senior members of the cabinet really don't have uh, much of a handle and are not supposed to by design under under a Nawaz Sharif prime ministership uh, to have much of a handle, uh, that that really limits the scope for opportunistic, uh, you know, ventures of the, of the kind that you're talking about because that requires an ongoing vision and an ongoing in-place strategy that then is uh, the tactics of which and the operations of which are decided at the ministerial or the advisory level. Uh, in, a, in a Prime Minister uh, Nawaz Sharif government, that's not how things work. Uh, the way things work is everything is under the control of the Prime Minister and his core uh, group of uh, you know executors. On the bureauc bureaucracy side, there's always one or two or three people that are that are really key and then on the political side, uh, a couple of people that are really key. And uh, they execute the will of the prime minister. When when people criticize this prime minister for uh, an Mughal emperor-like uh, approach to governance, they're not, they're not wrong. There, there is a extreme centralization of power. And when the prime minister is under the knife and when he's being operated upon, I think all our prayers, uh, my prayers, uh, certainly are with him. And I think accompanying those prayers is a hope and, and, and a dua and, and, and an appeal uh, to the Lord to, to really to, to gift him with the ability 
and the uh, courage to invest more in our system, to trust his ministers more, to find better people to do the things that maybe he doesn't trust the people that are in place to do them. But we need a real system in our country. We cannot sustain ad infinitum this de facto uh, sort of governance system in which when something becomes a crisis, then suddenly some really bright minds start working on it. But until things don't reach, reach crisis stage, they are just floating in space in a vacuum because uh, they aren't part of the core vision of the prime minister uh, or, or that they fell off the edge of the table because there's so many things to do in a country as big and as important as ours. I agree. I'm, I'm thinking now, I, I agree. I hope uh, the prime minister gets well, gets fully, uh, he fully recovers and it's not an easy uh, procedure to have. I also think that I hope that, you know, when he's got time during his convalescence that uh, maybe reflect on some things because those changes will ultimately help push the country forward. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a pretty good note to end the program on today. As always, Fasi Zaka, I'm grateful uh, to you for your thoughts. And uh, seven, seven, for this thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we. Um, this was a rather, I was thinking somebody just said something about our laugh track, that we laugh too loud. But since we were talking about the Prime Minister's health today, I think we both felt it appropriate. Um, I mean, I think there is a, uh, you know, not, not, I wouldn't say a sadness, but certainly a concern uh, that we both share that we want him to do well. And so there's nothing really that, that funny uh, to laugh at. Uh, but obviously, in future episodes, we will try our best to improve the quality of sound engineering. Um, I mean, the other thing is, here's my hope. My hope is that he recovers fully, things go well, and then, you know, as is with most cases, sometimes tragedy becomes a source of levity in the future once the implications have been shown to be benign and things have recovered or gone back to how they've been. And let's hope we're in that position in the future. Inshallah, Lazim. Thank you, Fazi Zaka and Khudafiz, everyone, uh, with another prayer for the Prime Minister. This is uh, How to Pakistan signing off this episode. Goodbye and good night.